4: Good morning. It's eight thirty on Friday, May fifteenth. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi businesses react to the grant program passed by the legislature, and what nursing homes are doing to fight high transmission rates. Then
5: I also remember hearing bullets whizz past my head while hitting the ground, the glass, the building, and some students.
4: We hear from a survivor of the 1970 Green Gibbs murders at Jackson State, plus a Gulf States newsroom roundtable on hurricane preparedness. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A $300 million relief package for Mississippi small businesses is one step away from becoming a reality. The two-part program passed through the legislature Wednesday night and is awaiting the signature of Governor Tate Reeves. After a week-long clash with lawmakers over the power to appropriate CARES Act funds, state leaders settled down to address the growing concern of small business owners. During his daily press briefing yesterday, Reeves addressed the bill and the relief that comes with it.
3: Wall Street is going to be just fine. Main Street is where my concern is. Main Street, Mississippi, in places like New Albany, in places like McGee, places like Amory, in places like the Mississippi Delta. The big global companies are going to be fine. The small businesses that are Mississippi-born and Mississippi-bred are where we should focus our efforts. Here's what was in the first deal. $300 million, for small businesses to support their employees and to cover costs from being shut down. It's broken down into two main sections. There's one immediate source of stabilization that most businesses that were interrupted should be able to get. That's direct payments directly to small businesses. It will involve as little paperwork as possible. We still have to ensure that we comply with federal treasury guidelines. We still have to ensure that we comply with the law as it was passed, by the state legislature, but the goal will be to get these dollars out as quickly as possible. Then small businesses can get additional money through what we're calling the Back to Business Fund. You can get up to $25,000 to reimburse the costs that you've incurred and the damage that has been done during this time.
4: A Mississippi business organization says the grant program just passed by the legislature is needed to help small businesses recover from the pandemic. Dawn Starnes is with the National Federation of Independent Businesses. She says some small businesses don't have large cash reserves and operate on thin profit margins. Starnes tells our Desiree Frazier, as owners work to reopen, the funds available through the program will help meet expenses. A
0: program like this really... Uh, is important for small business owners to have that little bit better uh, sense of cash flow, sense of security available to them, and they'll be able to use that money for uh, payroll, for expenses, and that will really go a long way as they begin to reopen their doors before customers begin to come back. The challenge is, is going to be customers, and so that's going to take a little while.
6: How many businesses do you represent and do you sense that a lot of them may close or some of them may close?
0: We Our membership in Mississippi is around, uh, around 2,800, I believe. Our membership fluctuates, but it's in that ballpark. And, you know, we've got uh, members in every industry segment from farmers to, you know, IT software developers to, you know, nail salons to dry cleaners and everything in between. So, um, you know, some have not been as impacted as others, um, but the folks who have been impacted have told us, that they could survive under these conditions for one to two months. Um, generally, you know, we talk a lot about our, our small business owners across the state just operate on a thin It's just the nature of small business. And so uh, they don't have huge cash reserves. They usually have some, some stored away though, because, you know, they're, they're doing everything they can to keep their doors open and keep people employed. So um the, biggest challenge right now is obviously, you know, getting open to full capacity, uh, getting customers back through the door. And if we're able to overcome those hurdles in the coming weeks, um, in coming months, then we, we suspect that our fo- uh, small business owners will be able to make it, especially with programs like the PPP at the federal level. And now this new program that the state has put in place, which is just wonderful.
6: I spoke with um, a hair salon and for independent like barbers and hairdressers, they say, while they're grateful for 2000. It's really not that much.
0: The fact is, is there's not going to be a replacement for lost revenue, you know, um, but what, what, what folks can do and what the legislature has done. I mean, $2,000, you know, will help a a lot of folks. And then that $25,000 grant uh, opportunity will also help them as well. So, um, you know, it's a it's a multifaceted approach that could really go a long way.
6: Looking ahead, what are you going to be advocating for for your membership?
0: Yeah, I think we're gonna be really focused uh when the legislature returns the opportunities of uh whether there'll be opportunities to file some new legislation or if there's another special session on the subject that you know, uh liability concerns ranks among the top of, of our concerns for our members right does now. Does that mean people um, being sued if it's um yes.
6: if someone contracts the virus?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a multifaceted thing. It's both um, from from contracting the virus, you know, I think, you know, employees probably, you know, employees would have to go through the workers comp you know, scenario to kind of, uh, you know, see if that. If their case were able to be proved, but liability from the perspective of folks who have been open, um, folks who have uh, adjusted their, you know, adjusted what they do uh, for their line of business to create PPP or maybe um, get involved in making, you know, face masks or hand sanitizers or that sort of thing that they didn't do before um, we want to be sure that folks uh these small breweries and uh manufacturers and clothing shops that have uh recently gotten into that line of business to help fill the need and um, address the concerns uh for it um, aren't subject to any type of uh, you know frivolous lawsuit
4: Don Starnes is the State Director of the National Federation of Independent Businesses. Next, what nursing homes are doing to fight high transmission rates. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. i'm karen brown mississippi's long-term care facilities are home to nearly half of the state's covid19 related deaths mpb's kobe vance reports on what nursing homes are doing to slow the spread of disease and keep family members informed during the crisis
2: mississippi's long-term care facilities have been the epicenter of the state's coronavirus pandemic says paria chadumberam policy analyst with the kaiser family foundation she's been tracking public health data across the nation and says concerns about diseases spreading in nursing homes have existed for years.
0: When you look at the different factors that a pandemic puts into place, you know, extra stress on the healthcare system overall, you've got vulnerable residents sort of grouped together in congregate settings, very close together, staffing capacity shortages, things like that. It really does create sort of this perfect storm for long-term care facilities to be hit in this incredibly hard way that
2: they have been. Governor Tate Reeves announced Monday that all residents will be tested if a positive case appears in a long-term care facility. He says he hopes to expand the initiative even further by testing every facility whether there is an outbreak or not.
3: Now that's an ambitious goal. We're not going to be able to do it tomorrow, but that is going to be our change in posture or really just an additional focus on those facilities uh, as we work to slow the spread of this virus in those most high-risk areas.
2: Tony Hamrick, President of the Mississippi Healthcare Association and Nursing Home Administrator in Hattiesburg says long-term care facilities across the state are taking extra precautions. He says his nursing home had already limited visitation before going into a complete lockdown.
7: A complete lockdown meaning no visitation, no families, no vendors. The only way that vendors get in, they have to be sanctioned in temperature checks, background checks. They are essential, so we have to have them. Other than our employees and our vendors and essential medical personnel, we don't allow anyone else in.
2: The Mississippi Department of Health is not releasing the names of long-term care facilities with outbreaks. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says this is standard procedure for all diseases.
7: We've had outbreaks in long-term care for years, and to protect the identities and the privacy of the residents, and also, too, to prevent stigmatization of different facilities. It's always been our stance not to release long-term care stuff. We have strong concerns that it's the wrong thing to do to release the name of the nursing homes.
2: AARP Mississippi Director Kimberly Campbell says the loved ones of nursing home residents should be asking questions about safety and care. She says informed voters can also help make important policy decisions that will help fund and maintain safety in nursing homes.
5: Then the discussion needs to be what can we ask for Congress to really make sure that the nursing homes are really a part of any other coming down the pike COVID relief packages to really make sure they're at the front line, uh, just like our health care workers, to getting those safety precautions and protective equipment in place.
2: While nationwide shortages of PPE are a concern, MSHCA President Tony Hamrick says facilities in his organization have found ways to obtain the essential equipment.
7: We've got sources. We've got FEMA. We've got our local people. We've had the National Guard. We've got parent companies of all the owners in the state, and we've got the health department. So anytime that anybody screams we're short of something, needs have been met. Someone's come to the rescue, and we found the equipment that needed to be used.
2: While Mississippi continues to reopen its economy and allow residents to return to their normal lives, Hamrick says it could take much longer for nursing homes and long-term care facilities to reopen their doors.
7: I would suggest that Nursing homes would probably be one of the last places to open because we have such a vulnerable population. I would propose that I would still keep my nursing home locked down until I, as a provider, felt comfortable that the positive cases and the risk of infection were much lower than it is now.
2: Mississippi remains under a safer-at-home order until May 25th, and some counties have received tighter restrictions based on coronavirus infection rates in those areas. Because of variable testing numbers, it's unknown when long term care facilities will reopen to public visitation. Kobe Vance, MPB News.
4: The Mississippi Department of Health has reported that at least 1,345 cases of the virus have been confirmed in long term care facilities, with at least 224 virus related deaths in those facilities. Coming up, we hear from a survivor of the 1970 Green Gibbs murders at Jackson State. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. In May of 1970, Galea Porter was a sophomore majoring in sociology at what was then called Jackson State College. The campus was home to mounting racial tension. At the time, Lynch Street was a main thoroughfare that went through the campus, and Porter says students were routinely harassed by white motorists passing through. Some students started fires on campus in protest after a false rumor spread of the death of civil rights activist Charles Evers. The National Guard was placed on standby and Jackson police closed off entrances to the campus. It was just before midnight when Highway Patrol officers and Jackson police marched up Lynn Street and at some point opened fire near Alexander Hall, where Galia Porter lived. When the gunshots ended, two African-American men were dead, at least a dozen others injured, including Porter. She shares part of her experience with our Ashley Norwood.
5: When they got there they were dressed in riot gear and they turned and faced us after a an officer said something to the effect May I have your attention? Well when he said that uh, it was later stated that the bottle was thrown and the officers lifted their guns and started firing at us. Now think Think about this. I'm on the hill about 40 feet, and that's a guesstimate, uh, about 40 feet from where they were firing, where where they started firing. And I actually could uh, feel or uh, hear the bullets whizzing past my face. Mm And, uh, and it was just terrifying. I could also, uh, feel something hitting and tearing into my skin, like stinging, uh, fire ant and, and bees that, uh, was in my, hitting my skin. I also, uh, remember hearing bullets whizz past my head while hitting the ground, the glass, the building and some students, all of this going on at once. Um, I remember uh, my fellow classmates crying and they were terrified of this unbelievable, unspeakable, senseless act because we knew we hadn't done anything.
8: That memory, does it still haunt you today of those events (laughs) that occurred? And, you know, how does it haunt you?
5: Uh, yes, um, especially when uh, the, the uh, college, University, Jackson State calls us back and uh, we have to bring up the thought processes for uh, what took place and realizing, you know, the older you get, you, you think about things that you've encountered in life and you, you think about those that really could have been uh, detrimental to your health, to your existence. So uh, my answer to your question is most definitely.
8: In all of that, are you able to find a silver lining or, you know, is there a bright side to it? Is there something about experiencing that or surviving that that's made you, you know, a better person in a way?
5: Well, I, I'm going to take that as a two-part question. Mm-hmm. You do know that uh, the, uh, the killings and the uh, shooting on the campus did go to court. Of course, it was not, uh, a jury did not find anybody guilty of the killings and the shooting up of the campus and the injuries that took place on the campus, uh, they dismissed the case. So uh, with that in mind, I will try and answer uh, the other piece to the question by just saying that um, we we should always, always think about our fellow man because we live in this country together and the COVID nineteen is here probably because we've not done some things that we should have done correctly. What was it like finally returning? Oh well, we had the summer off and I I had I at that time had very demanding parents. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't think I have to explain that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But anyway, they were parents that believed in education. They believed in us getting out and making a living for ourselves and being productive citizens. And uh, they wanted the best for us. So there was no way that I was going to stay in their house. And, go, and not go to school. So I had no choice. I was coming back to school and face whatever needed to be faced.
4: For more on Gailia Porter's story and the events at Jackson State in 1970, see our special digital feature by JSU alumna Ashley Norwood at mpbonline.org slash news. Coming up, a Gulf States newsroom roundtable on hurricane preparedness. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
7: Hey, this is Malcolm White. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Every week we talk with visual artists, musicians, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcast app.
4: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Hurricane season starts June 1st. That's nothing new for those who live along the Gulf Coast. What is new this year is the fact hurricane season is happening during the coronavirus pandemic. We hear about how emergency officials are preparing from reporters in the region. MPB's Evelina Burnett and Tegan Wendland of WWNO in New Orleans join the discussion. Andrew Yeager of WBHM in Birmingham kicks things off.
1: One place where the pandemic will have an effect is with shelters. Um, Clearly, social distancing will mean they can't hold as many people. Tegan, what have you heard from officials in Louisiana about how they're thinking about shelters?
6: Well, the Governor's Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness is holding a roundtable this week with local partners. And basically, they see COVID-19 as adding an extra layer to their preparations. So we use shelters all over the state to evacuate people, and they plan to continue to use those, but with these additional security measures. So adding more medical capacity, separating those who are potentially infected, and screening people using temperature checks, things like that.
1: And, Evelina, I I imagine you've probably heard similar things from emergency officials in Mississippi.
8: Yes, uh, definitely. Um, A lot of those same procedures they're looking at. They're also looking at how many people the shelters may be able to hold if they put in place the uh, social distancing requirements or recommendations. One of the emergency management directors I talked to said, they are thinking they may only be able to hold about one third of their normal capacity. And also they're looking at things like how to feed people if um, you're having to put in uh, new procedures. And also they're concerned about having enough uh, volunteers, especially they rely a lot on older volunteers. And um, they're also advising people to if they do uh, shelter often with family to make sure that they're talking to people ahead of time to make sure that those family members are comfortable with others coming into their home.
1: One of the things that I've heard from emergency leaders here in Alabama is how social distancing would affect them. Um, I spoke with Alabama's Emergency Management Agency Director, Brian Hastings, and he explained that normally when they have a disaster situation, they'd have 125 people in the operations center, and that just won't work in today's world.
2: It would be just really, really po- problematic to try to have everyone with masks uh, sanitize and disinfect all the areas all the time while people are that close together with that much traffic.
1: And Hastings said that right now it's almost like a dry run because they do have staff working remotely and figuring out how that communication works. And I also spoke with a person from the Jefferson County Emergency Management Agency that's here in Birmingham, and she explained that while they're involved in pandemic response, they've actually limited the number of staff involved with that so they could free up other people to deal with another disaster, be it a tornado or hurricane. And Evelina, what have you been told about how people should prepare?
8: Uh, Well, like I mentioned earlier, uh, making sure that if you are going to family or friends, that they are going to be comfortable with having people coming in to their homes. One of the emergency management directors I spoke to also advised that residents may find it take longer to stock up on supplies. So he advised people not to wait to start stocking up. Another emergency management director said, Uh, Usually they advise people to be prepared for three to five days. Now they're thinking maybe to be prepared for as long as 10 days. And then also to make sure that you have those supplies, the masks, the hand sanitizers, that sort of thing. And um, the emergency management folks are also trying to stock up on some of those same supplies for the shelters.
1: And, Tegan, hurricane season, of course, is nothing new along the Gulf Coast. Um, But how concerned are those you talked with about having a pandemic on top of that?
6: You know, these are experts. They deal with this every year. So they're saying they're not very concerned. They held this tabletop drill with the National Weather Service this week to find potential weak spots running through various scenarios. And they're also just hoping that there are no major hurricanes early in the season, as officials are assuming will be more prepared and also have fewer cases of COVID-19 in the fall. And just like officials are saying in Mississippi, um, they're telling residents here to stock up on personal protective equipment like masks and hand sanitizer and add that to your hurricane prep kit.
4: That was Tegan Wendland of WWNO in New Orleans, Andrew Yeager with WBHM in Birmingham, and our own Evelina Burnett. The conversation is part of a regional collaboration of public radio stations in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio.